Amen. Thank you, Jesse. Uh, my very favorite part about the Christmas season is that we get to sing O Come, O Come, Emmanuel. Uh, I love hearing everybody sing. It was a very encouraging this morning. Taina, you did a great job arranging everything. Um, and I'm going to remember, like, we need to sing O Come, O Come, Emmanuel throughout the whole year. So, amen. Yeah, absolutely. All right, so... Um, we are picking up in our, in our series in Ruth. We are in the middle of chapter 2. And uh, as we said at the end of the sermon last week, and I want to set it up the, that way this week, that the predominant verb and theme in chapter 1 was turning, returning. Also the same verb for repentance, and that's what repentance is. It is a turning from one thing to another. So we move from a chapter of repentance to a chapter where the predominant verb and the predominant theme is one of gleaning in uh, chapter 2. And so the word glean doesn't really mean much to us, uh, because looking around this room, I don't think any of us have ever done it. So let me give you, um, and and if you have, come up and tell me afterward, I need some sermon illustrations. Um, But for the rest of us, um, we don't really understand the the, uh, process it is much less glamorous than reaping or harvesting, and that's not glamorous because that's really hard work. The difference between reaping and, and harvesting is, and reaping and harvesting, that's your, your, your job, and you get to move through the fields first. But in gleaning, you are at the mercy of those who are reaping and harvesting. You come by later, and anything that they missed becomes fair game. And so hopefully you get behind a sloppy harvester. But either way, it is long, hard work. Row by row, head, of, head by head, piece of grain by a piece of grain. If any of you have ever been like apple picking or a berry picking at the very end of the season, and you got to peel back leaves, and you got you, you to go through a lot of rows You've got to go through a lot of bushes, a lot of trees, just to fill your, you know, fill your little bucket. Uh, all the northerners are, are smiling right now. Um, imagine doing that in order to eat. We do that for fun on, on, on a weekend. We spend a couple hours. But Ruth did this from morning until evening. And it was only, and there were many other poor people and um, sojourners and uh, widows who had to do this for, for food. And so remember, when, a, when someone in that original context is, is reading this, gleaning is not a glamorous thing. So they understand the, the, the difficulty in what's in, in, in front of Ruth. This was so intimidating to Naomi, she stays home. This is the uh, 21st century equivalent of being the last one in line for the uh, potlucks. You know, we're like, you, you, you come down the line, and, and there, there's, there's only the, the really, you know, the stuff that, that no one wants. I know, first world problems. Um, but that's about all we can, we, we can relate to. This process of gleaning is for the lowest of the low. This is welfare for the, the poor. But the interesting turn here is that Ruth, who turns, who repents, who leaves Moab and goes to Bethlehem to start at the very bottom rung of the ladder, goes out into the field without hesitation. She goes out to glean, and she is blessed through it. She has received favor from the Lord, who she now calls her God. She has received favor from from Boaz, and her favor increases. So this, uh, this passage is full of so many gospel parallels for us, um, and so many practical parallels for us. This, this picture of, of being owed nothing, expecting nothing, and then being given grace upon grace upon grace. So let's read our passage, uh, picking up in Ruth chapter 2. I'm going to begin in verse 14 and read through the end of the chapter. And at mealtime, Boaz said to her, come here and eat some bread and dip your morsel in the wine. So she sat beside the reapers and he passed to her roasted grain. And she ate until she was satisfied, and she had some left over. When she rose to glean, Boaz instructed his young men, saying, Let her glean even among the sheaves. 
and do not reproach her. And also pull out some from the bundles for her and leave it for her to glean. And do not rebuke her. So she gleaned in the field until evening. Then she beat out what she had gleaned, and it was about an ephah of, of barley. Ephah of barley. And she took it up and went into the city. Her mother-in-law saw what she had gleaned. She also brought out and gave her the food which she had left over after being satisfied. And her mother-in-law said to her, where did you glean today? And where have you worked? Blessed be the man who took notice of you. She told her mother-in-law with whom she had worked and said, the man's name with whom I worked today was Boaz. And Naomi said to her daughter-in-law, may he be blessed by the Lord, whose kindness has not forsaken the living or the dead. Naomi also said to her, the man is a close relative of ours one of our redeemers. And Ruth the Moabite said, Besides, he said to me, You shall keep close by my young men until they have finished all my harvest. And Naomi said to Ruth, her daughter-in-law, It is good, my daughter, that you go out with this young woman, lest in another field you be assaulted. So she, so she kept close to the young woman of Boaz, gleaning until the end of the barley and wheat harvest, and she lived with her mother-in-law. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, prepare our hearts this morning to glean from your word. Lord, so many times we read and our eyes just gloss over the words in the page. Sometimes we try to make it through our yearly plans and we don't really glean. Lord, help us to take time and pull the heads of, of grain and appreciate every bit of knowledge and encouragement and insight and wisdom and correction and conviction that we get from your word, that we would be conformed to your image. Lord, would the fullness of your word that is living and active, would we feast on it today and those here who neglect the word, who do struggle to read, who don't know your word at all, Lord, would a hunger develop in their soul to know you, to look upon your revealed word, to know the living God, the God who is merciful and gracious and good and steadfast and faithful and true, and Jesus Christ whom he sent. the Redeemer of mankind, one like us yet not like us, one who can stand in our place but only does so because he's the only one who's worthy. Lord, we praise you for your word because it points us to you. We play, praise you for your word because it, it declares to us your Son. Father in heaven, would you be glorified the preaching of your word this morning. Would Jesus Christ the Son be exalted? Would we see him? And would the Spirit of God, would he bring to our remembrance our own salvation or our own need for salvation and apply the words to our hearts and our minds uh, and to our hands so that we would not just be hearers of the word but doers also. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right, so this passage, this section begins here. Um, and throughout it, and really throughout the rest of the book, we're going to see Boaz's lavish grace, Boaz's abundant generosity. Boaz here begins functioning as the wings of refuge to which Ruth was seeking. If you jump back to verse 12. Here's what Ruth, or excuse me, what Boaz admires most about Ruth. The Lord repay you for what you have done, and a full reward be given you by the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to take refuge. And so through Boaz, the, the Lord is using human means. He is showing he is a place of refuge. He is that, that strong mother eagle who protects and provides for her young. He shows through Boaz his, his provision and that 
he provides through all kinds of means, and he does use his people. So I want to go through the details, especially in verse 14. This is a beautiful table. All, every detail here is important. Um, and it, it really helps set the scene for how much favor Ruth has really, really been shown. First thing, and at mealtime. What does he mean by uh, mealtime? Um, so we're almost like, if, if you work a you know, weekly job, you know, we're almost kind of just, just handed this short little lunch break. You get 30 minutes, you, 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 might, you might get an hour, you kind of rush in, you kind of rush out. This is an experience. This is mealtime. This is the uh, siesta during the middle of the day, the, uh, the, uh, the arrest. I saw Mateo smiling. I knew that's where you were going. Um, this is the, uh, the arrest in the middle of the day where everyone uh, for several hours, and we need to re-implement this, by the way. Um, I would, it, I, I, I'd love to work from like sun up and then you get like three hours in the middle of the day to eat and drink coffee and relax and talk. It sounds great. Um, but anyways, so what they would do is, is they would take the, the hottest part of the day they would, they would come together, and they would, all, and they would all eat. So this was the time when um, they could show hospitality, when you could bring in family and uh, neighbors and friends and, and have them relax and put their labors aside for a moment. This is when deals would, would, would get done. You know, this was when the important men would, would, would come together. Um, this is when the uh, women would uh, talk and the children could, could play and all this. Um, and uh, you got wined and dined in the middle of the day. Uh, so we don't really have an equivalent for this. Maybe there's a, there's, a, there's a sliver of this when we have people over for dinner and we get to show hospitality and we get to relax after the day. Um, but still, in Eastern cultures, uh, this is a uh, custom that uh, really still exists. Mealtime is a lot more formalized. Um, and this uh, formal role there's, there's a lot of honor and uh, prestige in this, especially for a wealthy landowner like, like Boaz. Because while everyone would have rested in the couple hours of the day, not everyone rested at the master's table. Not everyone was invited in to eat the, the, the best of the bread and drink the best of the wine. So the, the fact that the owner of the field would say to Ruth the Moabite, come here. That is so significant. Don't lose that little detail. Because she is unclean. She is unwelcome. You remember Peter in our study in Acts? He didn't even want to go to a Gentile's house. He didn't even want to cross over their threshold, let alone eat with one. But here, Boaz, knowing full and well she's a Moabite and she's unclean, shows her grace she does not deserve and she does not expect She's now welcomed. And he says to her in an intimate sign of friendship and of uh, honor and familiarity, he says, come here, eat some of the bread, and dip your morsel in the wine. This is a common Eastern culture, uh, um, Eastern practice um, that still takes place today. This, um, most, most cultures don't have silverware. Silverware is a modern invention. You know, you rip off a piece of the bread, you take something, and there's, a, there's all these different um, sauces and, um, you know, soups and things like that, and you, would, and you would dip them in it. And so you're not going to dip your hand in your bread with your grubby little fingers in the master's bowl unless he really likes you. And so this is a sign of how much she is, how much honor she is showing him. So I have to um, bring it up. This is a quick side note. Um, we, we used to use as one of the methods for communion intinction. And, this, um, and so it's caused a lot of questions for, for people. But just to clear it up, um, when, when people see intinction, people see someone taking bread and dipping it in a cup, they think, typically, Roman Catholicism. Oh, that's what the, uh, the Catholics do because there's, there, there's some kind of symbolism that they apply to it. We were thinking way b- before Roman Catholicism. We were thinking back to this, and this was a, that was also also part of the uh, Passover feast, um, where there where you would in one of the, the courses you would dip the bread in, in the cup. So um, there is there's nothing that is um, theologically necessary within that that mode. We just like the, the the symbolism. 
And we as individual Westerners kind of shrink back at that, like, wait a second, we got to share a cup, we got to share a, a bread. Um, but that's what uh, Ruth and Boaz did, Jesus and, and the disciples did. Anyways, um, but communion does not rise or fall on that. So that was my side note. So not only did he bring her in intimately and say, dip your morsel in, in my uh, cup of wine, which was only reserved for the, the um, most honored guest, he takes the freshly roasted grain and he passes it to her himself. This, again, seems like a little detail to us, pass the mashed potatoes. But for an honorable Jewish man to reach out and hand something to a Gentile, something that only the servants would have done. What we also don't know is in those, those, those meals, he would normally sit, he would recline, all of his guests would, would recline. They wouldn't, they, they wouldn't pass the mashed potatoes. There'd be servants who would hand them out to each one of them. So he shows her in, the, in that, that moment, I am humbling myself. I am acting as a servant towards you. All these, these, these little details are missed on us, but I, but I don't want you to miss them any longer. And then after all that, if that wasn't enough, that he treats her like this honored guest. So she sat beside the reapers, Okay, so she's sitting beside his own workers. He passed her the roasted, roasted grain, and she ate until she was satisfied, and she had some leftover. What a beautiful meal after working in the fields all morning. What a beautiful meal after coming from the hunger and the famine of Moab. What a beautiful picture of the peace and provision of the Lord. To me, it kind of feels like the, the, the 23rd Psalm of how the Lord provides, Psalm 23, verse 5, and he prepares a table before me in the presence of my enemies. Ruth was not welcome there. You anoint my head with oil, my cup overflows. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. This is a picture and a sign and a promise of the Lord's abundance of the Lord's provision. Ruth, you turned and came to me. I will provide for you. And not only will I fill your cup, I'll overflow it. And you can trust that I will always provide for you, that I'll always care for you. You will never go hungry again. This is beautiful. And so, as she leaves, he kind of gives instructions to the workers. Uh, verse 15 when she arose to glean, Boaz instructed his young men, saying, hey, um, keep an eye on her. Notice there are two positive commands and two negative commands in verse 15 and 16. First positive command, let her glean from among the sheaves. Second positive command, and also pull out some, uh, pull out some from the bundles for her and leave it for her to glean. And two negative commands, do not reproach her and do not rebuke her. All right, so quickly here. Um, among the sheaves, another word we don't know. So when the reapers would go out and they would gather bundles from the, the, the choicest grain, they would, they would set those up, piles up as they, as they go and someone would come back and, and pick up the piles. She no longer has to go to the bargain bin. She no longer has to pick through the, the, the outdated food in the dented cans. She gets to go right to the shelves. She gets to go right to the food that, it, that has been prepared, that has been curated, and set right before her. Let her pick from among the, the choicest of your own harvest. And not just that. Give her some from the bundles, too. So this idea of, like, whatever's been, been, been set aside, and prepare her a, a, a bags of groceries. Let her pick directly from the shelves and put some stuff in a bag for her so she can take it with you. And do this, and twice he says, do not reproach her. Do not rebuke her. Don't mess with her. You give her choices of everything, and you treat her like she belongs to me. She has truly found favor. And I don't know where Ruth is going to put all this stuff. We'll talk about how much it is uh, in this, this next verse. So she gleaned in the field until evening. So we have Boaz's generosity and Ruth's industry, and her situation only improves 
But don't miss this detail. She gleaned until evening. When did she start? Remember last week, they gave him the uh, report that she showed up early in the morning? This is not a lazy woman. She didn't expect anything. She She didn't think she was entitled to anything. She works from early morning until late at night. And even with the the special treatment, she doesn't take off early. So the next detail here in verse 17 is interesting. Then she beat out what she had gleaned, and it is about an ephah of of barley. So the uh, beat out, what this means is, you know, there's a wheat in chaff. We know this this kind of language, the uh, stalks and, and and the husks that hold the grain. So not only did she have to walk and uh, glean, but she also has to do her own threshing. She also has to remove the uh, grain from the, from, from the stalks. Um, this, she also has to do her own winnowing, but she doesn't have her own threshing floor. So here she is beating out the, the, the grain, shaking all this stuff out. And after she's done, she gets about an ephah of, of grain. That means nothing to us. But that measurement is anywhere between 30 and 50 pounds. Imagine a, 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 a five-gallon bucket full of grain, and barley's dense. So um, forget CrossFit. She was field fit. She worked all day. She, she, she beat out the, the, the grain, and now she's probably got 40 to 50 pounds, a big bag of dog food that she's now carrying around with her and that she has to carry home. And so after she gleans, picking up in verse 18, she took it up, and when she went, and then she went into the city. And her mother-in-law saw what she had gleaned, and she also brought out and gave her what food she had left over after being satisfied. So think about this. This is a pretty impressive first day. She brings back all that food and the leftovers, and the writer reminds us that she was satisfied. She was so full she couldn't eat anymore, and she brings home a doggy bag for Naomi. This hardworking, joyful, hopeful woman is also so considerate. She told Naomi, I will be with you to the day that you die. And I'll also provide for you. She doesn't complain. She's not drawn into Naomi's bitterness. She comes home and gives her from the abundance that that, that she's been given. This is a beautiful example, again, of a godly woman. Um, Proverbs 31, 27 reminded me of this. She looks well to the ways of her household and does not eat the bread of idleness. This is Ruth. She looks well to the ways of her household and does not eat the bread of idleness. Her household at this point is, is Naomi, and she cares for her. Here is one of many amazing gospel parallels. She goes from the lowliest to the most favored. Remember, Naomi went away full, full of herself, full of big plans for what would happen in Moab, and she came back empty. Husband's dead, sons are dead, has nothing to eat. But Ruth, on the other hand, she empties herself. She turns to the Lord. She clings to the Lord, and he fills her. He satisfies her, and she even has some left over. This is that gospel promise that we've been looking at the last couple weeks. Christ said, if you leave your possessions behind, you leave your family behind, I will not only restore and replace what you left behind, I will give you a hundredfold. Follow me. Pursue me. I'll take care of everything else. I take care of the flowers of the field. I take care of the birds in the air. I will take care of you. You think Ruth was looking forward to gleaning? You think Ruth woke up that that morning and said, man, I can't wait to work out in the hot sun picking leftovers? Of course not. We don't see any hesitation here in the text. We don't see any grumbling. We don't see any any complaining. She was happy to be in the land of her God. I was thinking about this, the parallel for us. Have you ever experienced this in the Christian life? 
where you felt discouraged, you felt empty, you felt like, man, I got such a long day ahead of me. I got such a long week ahead of me. I got such a long year ahead of me. How am I going to do this? How am I going to go to work all day? How how am I going to get enough food to to feed my my family? How am I going to do everything I have to do on my to-do list? And you cry out to the Lord. And you get up and you go to work. Hopeful in him, Lord, I don't know how I'm going to do this, but you're going to provide. If I do this, if anything happens, it's in your strength, not mine. And you end up being overwhelmed by the end of the day. Lord, how gracious you've been to me. What was I really worried about? That wasn't so bad. This is still the, the, the character and the nature of our God. That when we depend on him, when we work for him, we stop being consumed with our, our own circumstances, all of the, the, the insurmountable tasks before us. Working in him and for him, he provides and he gives in, in abundance. I like the way that Paul says this in 2 Corinthians 1. Um, that there is difficulty and there is suffering in the Christian life. And this stuff's good for us. 2 Corinthians 1, 5. For as we share abundantly in Christ's suffering, so through Christ we share abundantly in his comfort too. We don't shy away from trials. We don't shy away from, from, from difficulty. We don't shy away from, from a hard day's work. What has our Savior done for us? Our Savior going before us. And in those trials, in those things, they end up being for our good. They end up being for our discipline. They're uncomfortable for a moment, but they bring the fruit of righteousness because we get to see God's faithfulness. We get to see God's provision. We get to see God's care. And at the end of the day, we rest knowing that he has satisfied us. And so she comes back from this satisfying day of of, of work, and Naomi's amazed. Of course she is. And her mother-in-law said to her, verse 19, where did you glean today? And where have you worked? This is incredible. This is like the best first day ever. Where does all this come from? But she knows this would not have happened unless someone showed her favor. Blessed be the man who took notice of you. So we don't really understand what Naomi just did here. Um, we throw around blessed or we, we offer blessings without a second thought. Someone sneezes, what do we say? Bless you. Um, or someone tries their, uh, their best, if you, if you live in the South and um, they, they, have a, they, they have a great effort and uh, poor execution, you say, bless their heart. But to be blessed in the Old Testament, this is a formalized invoking of divine favor. This is saying, God, I belong to you. And I am asking that you pour out your richest blessing and favor on this person. And you, this is a, a solemn vow, a solemn ask that you don't take lightly, that you don't do flippantly. When Isaac and Jacob bless their sons, there is a humble recognition, a, a sincere pronouncement of the appreciation of this, this person, the recognition of needing God to bless them. The uh, Hebrew root for this word to bless comes from the word, uh, comes from to kneel. So within it is built-in humility. You are falling on your, your, your knees saying, Lord, I don't have any right to ask this, but I ask for blessing, not for, the, not for me, but for them. Jacob, of all people, knew the importance of of blessing. Jacob knew how important they were. Jacob cheated his brother and wrestled an angel so that he could be blessed. This is a lot more important than just recognizing when someone sneezes. And so when she says, blessed be this man, she is going to God and asking God to bless him because of the blessing he has been to her and to Ruth. And he doesn't have to. Boaz doesn't, doesn't owe Ruth anything. 
but he's a godly man, so he must. Remember our reading earlier from Deuteronomy 10. So I want to pick up in the middle of that, that section. Throughout this, this book, Boaz is a, a picture, as a godly man, of God's faithfulness, of God's provision, of God's mercy, of God's care. Pick up in verse 17. For the Lord your God is God of gods and Lord of lords, the great and the mighty and awesome God who shows no, who is not partial and takes no bribe. Boaz doesn't show any partiality. He executes justice for the fatherless and the widow. He loves the sojourner, giving him food and clothing. So a sojourner here is not just, uh, we talked about this before, but this is important to remember. Ruth is a, is, is a sojourner. That is different than an immigrant. It is not just someone moving someplace for a better life or for a better opportunity. A sojourner says, I am leaving my land, my gods, my inheritance. I am forsaking everything so that I can come to your land and seek my inheritance but through, through your God. And I am going to pledge my allegiance to him. That is why God loves the sojourner. Because saying, the sojourner says, I have no inheritance among the, the people of God. I am throwing myself upon the mercy of God. And he loves the widow and the orphan because he is a helper of the helpless. And no one can help them. Ruth has forsaken her family. She's an orphan. Ruth's husband is dead. She is a widow. Ruth is a foreigner. So she becomes a sojourner. And he executes justice for them. Verse 19, love the sojourner, therefore. Why? Because you were sojourners in the land of Egypt. Boaz, do not forget where I brought your, your people. Don't forget what type of God I am. Because if you remember who God is, if you remember how far you were from him, if you remember your lowly status apart from the grace of God, how could you not show grace to the lowly? And how we treat others is a direct reflection of how we view the Lord. If we show partiality, we think of ourselves as higher than anyone else. We don't really understand who we are. We don't really understand what, what we've been given. But Boaz, as a godly man, understands. I come from a family of sojourners. We're in this land because God delivered us from Egypt and God gave us this, this land. How could I not be generous with what God has given me? And so Naomi's amazed. She blesses Boaz. And the next thing, uh, back in Ruth here, uh, Ruth tells Naomi the uh, day's events. And she told her mother-in-law with whom she had worked and said, the man's name with who I work today is Boaz. Now there's another detail. Ruth retells the day's events. Here's a great application. When you have been shown radical grace, when someone has given you favor you do not deserve, what's the first thing you do? Going back up, uh, where are we here? Earlier, verse, verse 13. She says to Boaz, I have found favor in your eyes, my Lord. Where you have comforted me and spoken kindly to your servant, though I am not one of your servants. The first thing you do when you've been shown radical grace is you show gratitude to the one who has given it to you. And then the next thing you do is you tell everybody you meet, guess what Boaz did for me? Thank you for showing me favor and, and gratitude. I had the most amazing day. I met the most amazing man. This is our response to when we have been shown radical grace, the first thing we do is praise the Lord. And the next thing we do is we tell everybody we meet. I met this amazing God. Look what he's done for me. I had nothing. He invited me to his table. He gave me food. He gave me wine. He gave me comfort. He put me at the front of the line when I deserve to be at the back of the line. That's how great my God is. And I think if we did this more often, we'd do less grumbling, we'd do less complaining. If we spent more time telling people about the goodness of our God, about the provision of our God, about the abundance of, of, of our God, we'd be less ungrateful. But we're often too busy worrying about what is not right 
opposed to remembering all of the good things that the Lord has already done. Here's the other thing from this, this section before we go into really the, the heart of our passages, verse 20 and 21. But think about this. Here's another great application. Naomi stayed home. So what is the result of staying home? If Naomi would have went with her, she would have experienced the provision of the Lord firsthand. She would have also sat at the table. She would have also have eaten the best bread and the best wine. She also would have gotten the freshly roasted grain. She also would have eaten of the meal. Now she's hearing about it secondhand. So what, is, what does that mean? For those who are bitter and lazy, they miss out on being satisfied. However, the Lord still cares and provides for his people. Even the lazy and grumpy ones get leftovers. But let's just think about that for a moment. This is a sermon in itself. The next time you are tempted to wallow in self-pity, the next time you are tempted to stay home, I don't even want to face the day. I don't want to go out there. Nothing good can, can happen. I'm really content in my pity party of one. When you, like Naomi, forget God's goodness, he'll still provide for you. But you know who gets satisfied? You know who gets the, the first fruit? Those hopeful, diligent workers who say, I'm going to serve the Lord today, whether I feel like it or not. I'm going to stop being bitter. I'm going to stop wallowing in my plans that have not worked out my way. And God, I'm going to serve you. And those faithful servants, he says, well done in the life to come and in this life now. Ruth had the favor that she had because she was a diligent woman. She did not define herself by her circumstances. She knew the goodness of the God she came to serve, and she went to work in the field. And she came home to Naomi. And now Naomi's belly can be full. And since there's hope on the horizon, we'll see uh, in this next section, her heart will soon be full too. So when we get to Naomi's realization, you can see the light bulb moment for, for Naomi in this next section. This is the heart of our text. Verse 20, she hears the name Boaz. Remember, we've got two different things going on here. In chapter 2, verse 1, there's a, there's, a, there's a parenthetical note. Hey, there's this guy, Boaz. He's from their same family. Ruth just happens to happen upon Boaz's field. She works for Boaz. She learns his name. She doesn't know the family tree, but Naomi does. So She comes home and says, oh, by the way, his name's Boaz. You ever heard of him? Boaz? Naomi said, may he be blessed by the Lord, and she means it. Whose kindness, the who here is not talking about Boaz, but it's talking about the Lord. May he be blessed by the Lord. This is a kingdom principle, because Boaz blessed Naomi, blessing those who, or excuse me, bless Ruth, blessing the one who comes to the Lord, there is blessing upon him as well. I want us to turn for a moment, um, before we get into this uh, section, I want us to look at 2 Corinthians chapter 9. Really debated on whether this should be our corporate reading or, or not, but we're going to spend a few moments in it. I want you to see, because what Boaz does here, the reason why Naomi is responding the way she does appropriately is because he's doing exactly what Paul is encouraging the church in Corinth to do. 2 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 8. The point is this. Whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly. Whoever sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. Each one of you must give as he has decided in his heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver, and God is able to make all grace abound to you so that having all sufficiency in all things, at all times, you may abound in every good work. That also is a sermon in itself. 
Man, I was so convicted as I was thinking about this this week and reading this, this passage this week. Like, how often I fail to do this. How often I fail to be generous because I forget how generous our God is. Let's read this verse again. And God is able to make all grace abound to you. So that having, so look at the list here. Our God, who gives us grace upon grace, abounding in all grace, so that you can have all sufficiency, everything that you need, in all things at all times. Is there anything God won't do for his people? Is there anything God won't provide for his people? Is there anything you will lack with your God? And he does all that that we may abound in every good work. All grace, all sufficiency, all time, in all places, so that we could do all good works. This is gospel ministry. This is what it means to be united to Christ, to have everything in him and be equipped for every good work. And Boaz is living that out for us. God has given Boaz so much. He's rich. And he gives richly to the one who clings to the Lord. Let's go on. As it is written, he is distributed freely, for he is given to the poor. His righteousness endures forever. He who supplies seed to the sower, who's that the Lord, and bread for food, will supply and multiply your seed for sowing and increase your harvest of your righteousness. You will be enriched in every way to be generous in every way, which through us will produce thanksgiving to God. This is exactly what happened. Because Boaz was, was generous, Naomi praises the Lord. By being generous, we cause people to thank God. When we say, I am doing this, not because I'm good, but because God is good. Because God has given me so much. And people praise the Lord in response. For, verse 12, for the ministry of this service is not only supplying needs of the saints, but it is also overflowing in many thanksgivings to God. The first thing is, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, to um, provide for Ruth's needs. That's the immediate but the ultimate is now Ruth is praising God and Naomi is praising God and God gets the glory for Boaz's generosity. Verse 13, by their approval of this service, they will glorify God because of your submission that comes from your confession of the gospel of Christ and of the generosity of your contribution for them and for all others. We as Christians should be the most generous people because we know we have been richly lavished with all the spiritual blessings in the heavenly places. The gospel tells us, I am going to pour out the fullness of my grace upon you. We should be gracious to all people, especially to the household of faith. Because we share in that abundant grace. And they praise God because we confess Christ when we do it. We don't do it for our own recognition. Lord, forgive us when we do. Christ has richly blessed me. I am happy to give it away. And while they long for you and pray for you, verse 14, because of the surpassing grace of God upon you, thanks be to God for his inexpressible gift. What we're seeing in Ruth is just a glimpse of the inexpressible gift that we have given to us through Christ. All right, back to Ruth. She here recognizes she is glorifying God. May he be blessed by the Lord, the Lord whose kindness has not forsaken the living or the dead. This word kindness, the Hebrew word chesed, covenant faithfulness, is one of the richest words in the Old Testament. It means loyalty, it means, it means grace, it means goodness, it, need, it means benevolence. It is God who is kind. It is God who is faithful. She praises God because his mercies don't end. There is another mirrorism here. From the living to the dead, there is no one who is outside of his reach. There is nothing that his grace can't touch. For the living, Ruth and Naomi are still alive. They need the Lord's provision. For the dead, we're not talking about salvation here, but even the family name who has no right in Israel because they, they, they threw away their inheritance. 
he still brings honor to the family name, to the house of Elimelech. God is kind, his hesed, toward the living and the dead. And in this kindness, he has brought forth Boaz. The man is a close relative of ours. This is the hope for the family. This is the recognition. This guy, this generous guy, he's from our family. He's also a kinsman. So light is beginning to shine through Naomi's dark cloud of bitterness. The light bulb is starting to flicker. It's about to go on. And it's, and it's almost like she makes this second realization here. She said, he is a man, he is a, is a close relative of ours, one of our redeemers. Ding, ding, ding. Immediately, Naomi moves from, from bitter to matchmaker. Aha. This still exists, by the way. Like, uh, Jews still have professional matchmakers when they're, um, they're trying to bring couples together. We're seeing the uh, twinkling of an eye. Hey, wait, he's from the family. He could redeem us. Uh, Ruth, we can work with this. So when, when she says redeemer, I want to tell you what she's thinking. If you want more on this, uh, most of Levit- Leviticus 25 is about the, the, the redeemer. But there's an Old Testament precedent that the family always took care of the family and its, and its legacy. Redemption is the, the idea of taking something back for a price. So there's always, it always costs the redeemer something. So redeemers would, would buy family members out of debt, would buy them out of slavery. They would secure land for an inheritance. They would take financial responsibility in case someone dies. Just give you one example, Leviticus 25, 25. It'll be up on the screen. There you go. If your brother becomes poor and sells part of his property, then his nearest redeemer shall come and redeem what his brother has sold. It's one example. But this also reply, uh, applies to marriage. Remember, we talked about this at the beginning, what a leveret marriage is. Deuteronomy 25, 5. The uh, same principle. Someone from your, your family, you're in need of a redeemer. Someone who come and uh, take the, the, the place. Usually there's some cost associated. And here's the idea. Here's what Romy, um, that Naomi's putting together, verse 5 of Deuteronomy 25. If brothers dwell together and one of them dies and has no son, the wife of the dead man shall not be married outside the family to a stranger. Her husband's brother shall go in to her and take her as his wife and perform the duty of a husband's brother to her. Um, yeah, we're just doing verse 5? Oh, let's keep going. And then the first son whom she bears shall succeed the name of the dead brother, that is, his name may not be blotted out of Israel. And if the man does not wish to take his brother's wife, then his brother's wife shall go up to the gate and to the elders and say, my brother's husband refuses to perpetuate his brother's name in Israel. He will not perform the duty of a husband's brother to me. This is a solemn duty. This entire book has been building up to the moment where they recognize, oh, there is, there's hope here. This is our redeemer. This is, a, this is a two-layered redemption. He might be able to um, bring some honor back to our family name, and you might actually get a husband out of this, and we might actually get a legacy out of this. And then thirdly, Boaz shows us what it looks like to be a gracious redeemer. Because understanding all of this symbolic background helps us appreciate our kinsman redeemer. Someone who comes from our very line. Someone who is just like us, who can stand in our place and who can pay the price that we owe. Galatians 4. This is our Redeemer. That's why these details are important. Verse 4, Galatians chapter 4. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman. Why is that detail there? Because he was born like us. He is one like us. Born under the law. Because we've broken the law. What needed to be paid? The redemption price. For those of us under the law. Is that our transgression of the law. Be covered. Also our 
birth into sin, our original sin, our sin nature be covered so we're adopted. Our legal obligation has been paid. The obligation of our nature being born in sin, we are reborn. We are adopted into a a family through a new birth. Our nature and our choices are addressed in our Redeemer. And because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. Our Redeemer, sent by the Father, also gives us the spirit who teaches us how to cry out to our Father, to speak the family language because we now have the family name. And if you have the family name, you are no longer a slave, but you're a son. So in just a moment, when Boaz treats Ruth like an Israelite, he gives her all the same privileges of those who belong to him. You're no longer a slave. You're you're now in my family. I'm going to treat you like an Israelite, not a Moabite. And if you're a son, you're an heir through God. Earlier on in uh, chapter 3, Christ redeemed us by becoming a curse for us, the curse that we deserved. Ruth was cursed being in Moab. Boaz says, I'll take your curse upon myself. Don't worry about it. I will cover you. This is what Christ does for his people and so much more. Do we remember how far that we were from the Lord? Do we remember that we were orphans just begging for mercy? Brothers and sisters, do you do you? Know those moments in your life when you know the depth of your sin. You know the debt that you couldn't pay. And you remember, I have a redeemer who loved me and came for me and paid this debt for me. Do we remember the amazing grace that we have been shown? How often do we remember it? Certainly not often enough. Because how often are we as bitter as Naomi? How often are we grumbling, complaining, focus on what is going wrong? God must have forgotten about me. God has done all this to me. God certainly couldn't love me anymore because I'm going through this. She forgot who, your, who her God was until he says, I have a redeemer. Be hopeful. I will care for you. I will provide for you. And so as we think about the uh, contrast of these, these uh, two, two women, as the uh, grace of God is bringing Naomi around and she's becoming hopeful again, I, wanna, I want you to ask yourself, if people were to characterize you, would they characterize you more like bitter Naomi or hopeful Ruth? How are you known? Are you known as a complainer, a wallower, always worried about what is what is wrong with you or your circumstances? Or are you known as a Ruth? I'm going to work. I'm going to trust the Lord. I'm going to go about my day. God will provide for me. This is a good question for us. Because the, the gospel should lead us to work like Ruth and, and, and hope like, like Ruth. And she is blessed in that way. So back at uh, the end of our section here. Back in verse 21, yet she is still Ruth the Moabite. Interesting. She is still Ruth the Moabite. Besides, he's, um, So Ruth the Moabite says, besides he said to me, you shall keep close by my young men until they have finished out my harvest. Boaz is already treating her like an Israelite. I know you're a Moabite. Reader, don't forget she's a Moabite, but he says stay close. Have all the uh, blessings. The kinsman redeemer is treating her like kin before she's actually redeemed. This is favor that he is showing to a woman who would one day become his wife before the consummation. And then I love Naomi's response here. And Naomi said to Ruth, her daughter-in-law, it is good, my daughter, that you go out with his young women, lest in another field you be assaulted. Um, Apparently those field workers did not have the best of reputation. If we think our day is the only evil one, if they had camera phones back in the day of Judges, we'd see some stuff. Don't go out with them because they might harass you. Remember, Boaz had to tell his his workers two times. Don't harass her. Don't don't rebuke her. 
But then Naomi says, this is good. And don't gloss over this either. Well, of course this is good. It's Captain Obvious. Like, yeah, Boaz has treated me this way. Why would I go to another field? I've just had the best meal I've had in years. And I've been given more than, it, than I should be able to, to carry. Why would I go anywhere else? But let's stop and think about it for a moment. How often do we do the same thing? Don't we need to hear this? How much grace has God shown us? He has saved us. He cares for us. He, he, he provides for us. Those of us who know the blessing of our Redeemer, how often do we go to other fields? How often do we see the provision and the abundance of the Lord one day and the next day go straight to our idols? She drives the, the, the point home because Ruth needs to hear it and because we need to hear it. Because how many times do we look for scraps in someone else's field Then we remember that we have a feast at the table of our God? But Ruth is loyal, and she clings to her Redeemer's care, and she clings to her mother-in-law. Verse 13. So she kept close. Here's that word cling again, like she clung to Ruth. She clings to the uh, young women of Boaz, and she's gleaning until the end of the barley and wheat harvest, and she lives with her mother-in-law. Remember the gospel timing of our story. Naomi and Ruth leave Moab at the time of first fruits, the day after Passover. She works throughout the time of the harvest, living with her mother-in-law until Pentecost. Pentecost foreshadows the gospel the bringing in of the Gentiles, the good news to all the nations, every tongue, tribe, and nation, singing the praises of God. This gospel story takes place during a gospel timeline. And what is Ruth doing this entire time? She is clinging close to the young women of Boaz and living with her mother-in-law. Do the easy one first. She's honoring her vows. I will go where you go. I will live where you live. I will die where you die. And she is staying true to her word. But also she's wise. She's clinging to the young women who have been there before her. As sojourners, here's a good practical um, piece of counsel for you. Cling to those who have been working in the field longer. Pretty simple. Hey, these women know what to do. I'm going to watch them. I'm going to learn from them. So many young Christians think, I need to come in and I need to, to throw everything else that came before me out, out the window. No. Find a faithful seasoned saint and walk behind them. Walk next to them. This is the best thing for every Christian. Find someone who's ahead of you and stick to them and learn from them. When they serve the Lord and be faithful, imitate them. Praise the Lord. When they screw up, take note, don't do that. This is what it means to walk alongside each other. And then lastly, I have to say, if you are still in Moab, you need to turn. You need to repent. There is bread in Bethlehem. There is a redeemer. There is a table of abundance. And you can chase after all the things that you think are going to make you happy. But they will ultimately lead to famine. They will ultimately lead to death. There is no hope outside of the God of Israel. And if this message in Ruth teaches you anything, it is God is gracious and God has a plan for his people and all those who come to him will be fed, will be cared for, will be redeemed and will be kept to the end of the age. So for us, brothers and sisters, briefly remember, we like Ruth know what it means to depend on God's grace and don't forget it. We also know what it means to have a blessed redeemer. But our redeemer, his hesed, his covenant faithfulness never ends. We too, by turning, have a portion in Christ. He is our first fruit from the dead. We too glean in his field of grace and we too share his meal. We too, like Ruth, await the day when we'll be wedded to our kinsman redeemer. But what do we do in the meantime? Life drags on. It seems like we are daily gleaning day after day. I gotta pick another head of grain. I gotta wake up in another day and pick another head of grain. It seems like the day of the Lord will never come. This is why we need these reminders. This is why we never forget. We need to look to our Savior because we can so quickly become bitter and ungrateful. 
we would be as diligent and as joyful as Ruth if we remember our Redeemer, if we remember the loving kindness of the Lord every day. And this is why we need this table every week. Because we have a Redeemer who says, come here, come to me, eat at my table, I will provide for you. And those who come, they have life and life everlasting. I'll give you a moment to prepare for the table.